This is the Consilience Podcast with your host, Shannon Beer, health and confidence coach and founder of The Coaching Collective, helping dedicated fitness professionals to bring their coaching visions to life by developing the knowledge, skills and strategies to make that a reality. We're inviting you into conversations with experts on body image, compassion and behaviour change to help us challenge our assumptions about health and appearances and critically examine the way that we coach so we can help our clients on a deeper level and create an industry that is truly life enhancing. Let's get into the show. Today, I am joined by Dr. Christiana Duarte, who is a clinical psychologist who has been um, researching the area of the psychological correlates and determinants of eating behavior, weight regulation, body image, and mental health and well-being. Her specific research interests include weight stigma, body shame, food insecurity, and psychological approaches for eating regulation and weight management. And I've been really looking forward to this conversation after I think I came across your research when I was doing my compassionate mind training the facilitator training last year and learning more about the social rank mentality and the reasons we may have for the perceived need to control our appearance and seeing that through the lens of competing for social acceptance I think was a it it was like sort of a comprehensive theory that really explained why some people maybe are more likely to overvalue their appearance than others like we know that body dissatisfaction and social comparisons play a role but I think reading more about your research really tied it all together so in this episode we're going to be discussing the role of social comparisons feelings of inferiority and how that can tie in into shame and self-criticism and that can play a role in the development of eating pathology but before we get into all of that I thought I would start off by asking you why do you do the work that you do? Hi Shannon thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast it's a real pleasure to be here talking about these topics so why do I do the work that I do? Well my interest in the study of eating psychopathology eating behavior goes back to when I was uh, completing my PhD degree, my psychology degree, and then my PhD. So really stimulated by the research in the area and also by placements in eating disorder care units, I became really drawn to try to understand the role of connectedness, the, the, the place that we have in relation to others and with others and emotion regulation and how all of these variables played a role in the continuum of eating psychopathology. So I became really interested in trying to understand the fears and the processes underlying um, that that symptom that is the the symptom that people with eating behavior problems fear the most. And that is also distressing to many individuals across this continuum, even if they do not have a clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder. It really can impact all of us at one point or another in our lives. Um, as we are facing the challenges and the difficulties that we have in our current society that places so much emphasis on idealized presentations of physical appearance. So this fear being uh, the fear of uh, being seen as an unattractive social agent uh, and this fear of loss of control over our eating, loss of control over our bodies and the meaning of these fears and the functions of these fears and how they then impact our eating behavior, our well-being and our internal and relational world. 
So I became really interested in, um, very curious and interested in understanding the origins of these fears, the, this, uh, this challenging relationship that we can develop with our bodies and uh, how our context, the relationship that we establish with others and our position in relation to others uh, in, in our society can shape the relationship that we start to develop with ourselves and with our physical selves. So the work that I do comes from this uh, idea, this recognition that we exist in the context of uh, everything. And, um, and I follow this evolutionary functional analysis of social motivation, emotion regulation, to try to understand these variables that shaped us as humans and as relational beings and that shape our emotional and motivational systems and how these can really impact the way that we choose to eat, the way that we choose to move our bodies and can uh, become really problematic at one point or another in our lives. So this, uh, as I said, this doesn't affect only individuals that fit into, into the category if we follow this approach of looking at categories of eating disorders, it can really affect all of us because we all have a body and we all uh, have this relationship with food. So it can affect our friends, our partners, our mothers, our sisters, uh, and it can also affect our fathers, our sons, our brothers. So I became really interested in understanding all of this. I'm really glad that you emphasized that because as you say, we all have human brains and human bodies. We are all subject to appearance pressures. It might look slightly different depending on our culture, but we're all subject to pressures in some way. We all need to eat. We all have a relationship with food and we all have a desire to belong. So therefore the work that you do, as you say, actually affects all humans. And I think that's a really important realization that the fitness industry needs to wake up to because often I find that coaches can sort of discard all of this information because it's, well, I don't work with people who have eating disorders. Like that's not my scope of practice. And it's like, yes, that's true. However, that doesn't mean the information is not relevant to the people that you do work with, because as you say, a lot of this um, applies in non-clinical populations as well for those reasons that we just mentioned. So with that, perhaps we could begin by talking about social rank mentality. What is it and how might it explain eating pathology? Yeah, so, uh, exactly. so social rank mentality really uh, is related to that idea that we all share the same brain and we all go through the same difficulties and the same challenges. So social rank mentality is this concept outlined in the social rank theory proposed by Professor Paul Gilbert that follows this evolutionary perspective of how humans, um, how human social ranks and social relationships evolved around the desire to belonging and to be seen as attractive by others. So this gave us tremendous advantages, uh, but is also at the root of many of our difficulties including uh, mental health difficulties such as depression, anxiety, and also difficulties with eating behavior and eating disorders. So the idea is that our brain and our minds are really the result of evolution of these uh, pre-existing designs that adapted uh, throughout our evolution history to changing environments. So which we share with many other species the same motivations for reproduction, uh, gaining, defending territory, um, 
And so our brain has adapted to, to a series of changes uh, and it offered us a lot of evolutionary advantages without a doubt, with our capacity to imagine, create, solve problems, but this can also create difficulties and disadvantages in our modern environment, especially when it comes to food and um, managing our, our weight and um, looking after our bodies. Um, so critical to this idea is that social relationships are vital to our sense of safeness. Um, this was absolutely uh, important for our survival, belonging, uh, being seen as attractive by others. So we have evolved to be highly sensitive to any signals of disapproval, criticism, rejection, because belonging to the group was crucial to survival. So we, we developed a lot of mechanisms and competencies to track whether we are seen as attractive and whether others want us to be close to them. And whenever we perceive that others are seeing us as unattractive, um, this would put us in a position of potentially being uh, rejected or even attacked. So we are extremely sensitive to any signal of disapproval or rejection from others. So we have evolved to be highly motivated to compete for approval, to compete for acceptance, and to avoid being stigmatized, to avoid being rejected, to avoid being perceived as an unattractive social agent. So to track this, to be able to uh, assess whether we are seen as attractive or not by others, we became really careful in trying to understand what qualities are valued within the social group that we belong to within a specific social cultural context. So when we perceive that we are lacking those qualities that are valued by the group, we can perceive ourselves as being in an inferior social rank position and potentially at risk of being rejected or attacked by others. Um, and so this can be a, at the root of feelings of shame and self-criticism. So shame here is almost like a, an internal warning sign that we are in that inferior social rank position. So it is this defensive emotion, very powerful emotion that tells us there is something that makes you an inferior, um, inferior or an attractive social agent at the risk of being rejected or abandoned by others. And so this uh, warning signal is very powerful, is very painful, and uh, research shows that it can be uh, a key uh, emotion when it comes to eating behavior and body image problems um, in the way that we start to relate to our bodies. So why is that? Well, our physical appearance is the first thing that people see, that, can pe that people assess. So early in our evolution, physical appearance became a domain to assess whether uh, one is an attractive social agent or not. So this experience of shame exists in a, in a context where certain qualities are valued. And as our body is this part of us that is easily observed and assessed by others, uh, it really can become an indicator of how attractive we are as social agents. And this is completely shaped by the culture that we are in. The fact is that in our society, we know that um, slenderness and the presenting a fit body image is seen as attractive. 
and equates uh, positive personality characteristics and that living in larger bodies is stigmatized. So that is an indicator, uh, serves as an indicator of how attractive we are seen as social agents for others. But again, thinking of our evolutionary history, we are in a very tricky position. We have evolved in a context of relative food scarcity with occasional periods of abundance. So we have evolved to be optimal foragers and to see food and eat, eat it because we, don't, we didn't know about any possible uncertainties when it came to food. But now we are living in an environment of hyperabundance of food that is stimulated by the food industry and by advertisement. So we have these messages of eat food, consume food, consume hypercaloric food, and sedentarism is, is promoted by our society as well. But then at the same time, um, larger bodies are discriminated. So a lot of that this faces us with a lot, a lot of conflicting pressures. And then another aspect of, of our evolutionary uh, design that makes this relationship with our bodies and uh, with our eating behavior and how this is linked to perceptions of potential inferiority and how we are seen by others is that with the development of the human brain, we have evolved abilities for social, uh, for complex thinking, reflection, reasoning, self-awareness. And so for us, the relationship that we establish with food is very, very different from the relationship that other animals establish with food. We, we, we have attributed some, some, some functions and meanings to food that other man, animals don't do that goes beyond suppressing physical needs. We use food as a reward. We use food as a way of bonding socially. We make plans to go out for dinner with our friends. We get together and eat at Christmas. So uh, food has acquired these meanings that it doesn't have for other animals. So we find ourselves amidst a series of conflicting uh, pressures. We are designed to consume and store energy, but we are living in, a, in an environment of hyperabundance that criticizes that overconsumption and that criticizes existing in a larger body and pressure pressure us to live in a smaller body because that is what is socially perceived as portraying the characteristics that are valued by the social group. So this creates a sense of a constant pressure and constant monitoring that can be at the root of that need to control um, the way that we eat, to need to control the way that we look. And, um, and then uh, this, can, this is linked to these perceptions of uh, shame when we perceive that we are not being able to do that. And, um, and then paradoxically, we, start to, we can start to use food as a way to cope with that sense of shame, which in turn leads to more shame and more self-criticism in a cycle that can become very difficult to get out of. So this is how social rank plays a role in the way that we relate to food and we relate to our bodies and we relate to ourselves. So really, it's not so much of a surprise that many of us struggle with our relationship with our bodies, ourselves and food. 
as human beings who want to survive, you know, who are highly motivated to compete for acceptance, who have learned that our appearance is something to value, it's a way to achieve status, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we don't attain status in the same way, you know, we're not aggressive and dominant as, as such all the time anymore. Another strategy is to try and appeal and be more attractive to others. That's a, a new way sort of, of gaining that status. And we try to do that by appearing physically attractive. And I would also add, particularly for males, you know, it's not enough to be physically attractive. You also have to be very financially successful. You know, you have all these other pressures. You have to be super hyper masculine. And that's your way of attaining status, which, of course, becomes problematic as well. And when you layer on the facts that we're living in an obesogenic environment and we have as well the media, which is portraying more and more extreme physiques that are becoming less less attainable for the majority of us um, and the fact that we have the ability to ruminate and worry you know thinking about the negative comments that we have received from people on our appearance or comments about what we're eating and as you say that can bring up some very difficult emotions and when we're not sure how to regulate those emotions sometimes we can turn to food or even turn to exercise in ways that aren't helpful as an attempt to escape that shame and self-criticism so with that in mind you know what is the impact of shame and self-criticism why is that so detrimental to our well-being yeah so shame as i said is that very painful warning sign that you are presenting yourself as an unattractive social agent and thus you are at the potential risk of being rejected, abandoned, ostracized by others. And these experiences can be real experiences, say negative comments, uh, discrimination, bullying experiences, but it can also, because we have that capacity to imagine scenarios, anticipate, it can also be that fear of that potential rejection and the potential attack from others. So, so shame, shame is a, a defensive uh, emotion in the sense that it activates a series of cognitive and affective experiences that impact our behavior. So the shame tends to activate a series of defensive attitudinal and behavioral responses to protect us against that potential threat of failing in this competition for being seen as attractive by others. So these defenses can involve avoiding exposing oneself to others, avoiding uh, exposing our bodies because of that fear of existing negatively in the minds of others. If others uh, actually see that part of us that we believe that is at the root of those negative evaluations. And also desires to conceal the body, to control and manipulate our body shape, our body weight. But because this emotion is so painful, because it is linked to these very painful cognitions and these difficult thoughts. It's a very difficult internal experience to, to, to be with and to sit. So what happens is that people often start to find ways and ways that are not helpful to momentarily escape these negative emotions, not to sit with them, not to be with them, to avoid them. And food often emerges paradoxically as a way to cope with these negative emotions, to momentarily avoid them. And so this can be at the root of uncontrolled eating, binge eating, 
that can progress into an eating disorder. So shame and self-criticism play this role here where they can be at the root of attempts to control your weight and control your body shape by restricting your food, which can also lead to some feelings of being proud of what you are being able to achieve because you are actually controlling your body in a way that is valued by society, potentially. But then this sense of being proud of yourself can often lead to shame when you feel that you are not being able to maintain that because it's very difficult to maintain a restrictive eating pattern because of our evolutionary inheritance as well. So these can often lead to feelings of shame, feelings of failure, self-criticism, which is this more internalized form of shame that can be very harsh and cruel. And so food can emerge as a way to momentarily escape these negative emotions. But then when you lose control over your eating behavior and you feel like you're losing control of your, your body again and over your, your body shape, this can create more shame, this can create more self-criticism in a self-perpetuating cycle that is very difficult to get out of. But the good news is that it is possible to break free from that cycle. And for example, compassion can be a, a great way of breaking free of this perpetuating cycle of shame, self-criticism, attempts to control your body, attempts to control the way that you move your body and um, losing control over that and losing control over your eating behavior. I ask my clients when we finish up with coaching, you know, for a bit of feedback. And one thing that has come up repeatedly as one of the things that they found most helpful was learning how to become more compassionate towards themselves. And one of the I guess most frustrating things about the experience of shame is that in order for someone to feel shame, they have to one, perceive that they're doing something wrong, but then also blame themselves for it. And one of the things that we teach through compassion is that it's not your fault in that, you know, many of the reasons that we struggle with our eating are not our fault in the sense that we didn't choose to be born into like this food environment, for example, that does make it more difficult when individuals learn about, you know, how their body works, how their mind works, the connection between their emotions and their eating behaviors, it really allows them to take that step back and say, oh, you know, it's not me, you know, I'm not a failure, it's not me, there's not anything wrong with me. You know, it's just an unfortunate consequence and I'm struggling with these issues, but there is also something that I can do about it. So what is compassion training? You know, how, how can compassion help? Compassion mind training is linked to compassion-focused therapy. So compassion-focused therapy is a form of therapy that was developed to help people cope with, with shame and self-criticism aiming to help them understand the way that our human brain evolved and how it makes us vulnerable to rumination, to negative bias, self-criticism, self-monitoring. And as part of this therapy, we have compassionate mind training, which uh, involves specific practices to develop these capacity to be compassionate towards ourselves and towards others and also be able to receive compassion from others. So compassion mind training begins exactly with that, with that uh, psychoeducation on the evolved nature of our difficulties and the challenges of our human mind 
such as these tendencies for negative bias, for shame, self-criticism, this monitoring of how we are in relation to others and the position that we have in these dynamics of social rank. So when applied to eating behavior and body image, compassion mind training involves working through that recognition that we, we all find ourselves living in this period in history where overconsumption and sedentarism are promoted, but at the same time, they are criticized and punished through discrimination and stigma. We have this evolutionary heritage that shaped our physiological and our appetite systems, uh, which are not yet prepared to cope with this overabundance of food. And also we have a genetic makeup that we didn't choose, bodies that we didn't pick. We have experiences that we went through with our families, with our peers that we didn't choose. So it's really not our fault that we can often find ourselves potentially struggling with this difficult relationship with our physical selves, with our eating behavior, and with the motivation with which we decide to move our bodies and what we want to achieve with exercise. But an important understanding in compassionate mind training is that none of this is our fault, but it is our responsibility to address this and address the, the functions and motivations that we, we adopt. So it is our responsibility to choose to act in a way that addresses these difficulties and these challenges and can be conducive to a healthier relationship with our bodies, with our eating behavior and with ourselves. So in compassion mind training, we follow the definition of compassion as that sensitivity to suffering, sensitivity to distress in ourselves and others, but that commitment to try to alleviate and prevent it. So to promote this motivation and this commitment to alleviate suffering and engage in helpful actions like health behaviors, like engaging in a, a balanced, nurturing and nourishing diets and in forms of moving our body that are healthy and vibrant. Compassion Mind Training uses a different, a series of different practices. So it uses body-based and psychological-based practices. One of these practices is soothing breathing rhythm, which involves slowing down and uh, deepening the breath and noticing the sensations of the mind and the body slowing down and feeling grounded. So really important for that reconnecting with the body from within research has shown that this is activates our parasympathetic nervous system so it has all of those beneficial effects and other body-based practices involved practicing certain body postures and creating affiliative and friendly facial expressions and voice tones as a way to prepare your body to develop the the other practices that are more psychologically based practices so those practices involve mindfulness practices to intentionally bring that compassionate intention and that compassionate commitment to your daily life experiences moment by moment, and also imagery practices, such as imagining yourself as being your best compassionate self, being able to direct compassion to yourself, and as holding the qualities of a compassionate person 
having this wisdom that we all find ourselves here facing these challenges, it is not our fault, understanding the root of our difficulties and what we need to do to overcome our difficulties, having that strength and authority and the courage to sit with the negative emotional experiences, to sit with the experience of shame, to sit with the thoughts around criticism without engaging in maladaptive ways of momentarily avoid them, such as binge eating or emotional eating, for example, and keeping that compassionate commitment to be helpful to yourself, to be validating, empathic, and engaging in actions that are actually helpful to, to yourself. So these are grounding practices that help us uh, develop compassion, compassionate capacities and compassionate states of mind and of acting. I think that really helps to explain the difference between blame and responsibility, because I know that many people fear that, well, if I stop blaming myself, if I stop criticizing myself, then I will become complacent. I will let myself go. Whereas what you're saying here is that when we develop compassion for ourselves, we actually care for ourselves and our well-being, meaning that we are more incentivized to take care of ourselves, do the things like the difficult things, as you say, actually having the courage to face the things that I've been avoiding, to try to look after myself and support myself. So it's about understanding that I think people, they don't have a clear idea as to what it looks like. Therefore, they're reluctant to let go of the way that they've currently been doing things because we can kid ourselves that, well, you know, I'm still struggling, but the criticism will work, you know, it will help me in some way, even though we know that it hasn't been working. And I think when you have a clear idea as to what this different perspective could be, that, oh, there is a way for me to learn how to support my needs. There is a way for me to relate to my fears and to do the best that I can to support myself, given all of the constraints that we face day to day. And you mentioned a few sort of practices and exercises, combinations of um, breathing practices, of certain imagery practices that we can use to tap into this soothing system that for many of us is underdeveloped. Um, so perhaps we could explain um, just a little bit of detail as to why these practices are effective, because I know to many people, these will be very unfamiliar ideas and it's easy to dismiss like breathing or imagery as being a woo-woo, you know, whereas it actually is um, grounded in evidence as to how that affects our bodies when we do engage in some of these practices. I think you touched on a very, very important aspect there, especially when we talk about eating behavior and body image, is that sense that people really fear letting go of the shame and self-criticism. So fear, blocks, and resistances of compassion are really key in, in, uh, when it comes to people struggling with these aspects. Because there is that idea that I do, need to, I, I do need to feel shame. I do need to criticize myself because that is helping me, keeping in control. If we think of control as uh, um, the key aspect uh, surrounding those fears around um, your, uh, your body image not fitting into a certain ideal or um, 
your eating behavior not being able to to help you achieve that idealized image so i think uh, as part of the 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 compassion mind training it is really crucial to help people understand what compassion is and compassion is not to clarify and to help um, uh, break some of those blocks and resistances and fears of compassion so it's really important to clarify with people that motivational nature of compassion that compassion is courage that uh, developing these competences and these practices to cope with shame and self-criticism are really important and involve a lot of courage and so it's very important to clarify that compassion is not letting go of your capacity to cope with difficult things quite the opposite so it's not it's not being feeling pity for yourself or it's not being self-indulgent it's not self-care and it's not even being kind to yourself it can involve kindness but it's not about kindness and self-care it's really having the, the strength and the courage to delve into, into those difficult experiences, those difficult emotions, and engage in forms of acting and treating ourselves and our bodies in a respectful and helpful way. So in the context of eating behavior difficulties, this involves addressing the avoidance of shame, the avoidance of self-criticism, um, and involvement in, in self-criticism rather, which are that, at the root of harmful ways of coping with our bodies. So there are different ways we can explain this to, to, to clients and, and to people that ask for our help is really clarifying that shame is not pity, is not kindness. Um, say if um, a friend of yours comes to you saying that they found a lump in their breast being helpful and empathetic is, is useful, but you wouldn't say, oh, that must be really stressful. You shouldn't go to the doctor. Don't even think about that. Being a, a compassionate friend would be, would be, would involve saying, I know that is really hard and uh, I understand how scared you are, but you need to go to the doctor and I can go with you and you need to book an appointment as soon as possible and let's go together. So, Compassion involves this courage to engage with what is difficult. And so uh, these practices in compassion mind training, some people uh, are quite resistant to them because of that potential idea that if I do engage with these practices, if I do develop my compassionate capabilities and competencies, I will be vulnerable because I need the shame and the self-criticism to keep me on track. But the evidence is that these practices, these body-based practices and these um, more psychological-based practices are beneficial and do have a beneficial impact in helping regulate your behavior and engage in a healthy behavior change. So the soothing breathing rhythm practices, there is evidence that they do activate the parasympathetic system um, through the activation of the vagus nerve and that those uh, more posture-based practices, they do have an effect because of the body-mind connection. So the way that you move your body, the way that you, your, your posture, that you work on your posture, the way that you work on your voice tones and your facial expressions are linked to our emotional, emotional and internal landscape. So there is that internal 
um, feedback there. So it's really important to practice moving your body and uh, using certain voice tones and facial expressions to activate those that affiliative system, that soothing system and balance our threat system and our drive system. So yeah, so through the development of those capacities, we can, we can be better able to balance our emotion regulation systems and find ourselves in a more calm state and a more balanced state in the sense that we are able to fa face the challenges and difficulties in our daily, daily lives in a way that we can be more free to choose to engage in actions that are beneficial to us rather than engaging in reactive actions to avoid feeling shame or to avoid feeling out of control of our bodies, our eating behavior and ourselves. I'm glad that you stress the point that compassion is not the same as kindness, because I think that there are parts of the fitness industry that are starting to catch on to the adaptive benefits of self-compassion and its relation to eating and movement. But a lot of it is self-compassion is helpful for these reasons. So be kind to yourself. And it's like, oh, you were almost there, but not quite. Because actually, for those who struggle with self-criticism, that's going to be a massive turnoff to engaging in the work, especially in a social environment that values mental toughness, you know, where it is a good thing to be brave and dedicated and courageous. And unfortunately, we don't associate kindness with those qualities and compassion is something that is distinct. And when you are able to see that it does involve a lot of bravery a lot of courage a lot of wisdom all of a sudden it's, it sounds a bit more appealing and it's more useful in the circumstances because to be kind doesn't require suffering whereas compassion does so we're applying compassion to our biggest challenges which is why it can be so helpful for us and I think a lot of people intuitively know that their brain can influence their body state. You know, if we've all had thought sexy thoughts from time to time and notice the changes in our bodies. And the same thing goes with the voice tone as well. You know, if you're trying to get someone's attention, you could say, hey, or you could say, hey, you know, what's gonna, there's gonna be a different response that you'll get from the person, depending on how you, um, the, the tone of voice that you're using, not just the content of your words. And I think that has big implications for the way that we relate to ourselves, because I know a lot of people don't identify as being critical, but still experience an absence of warmth. So perhaps we could explain how a reduction in self-criticism doesn't necessarily lead to increases in compassion. And even those of us who don't directly you know identify as being critical towards ourselves may still benefit from training in compassion given that it is a strength and a resource for us to rely on yeah so i think that links with our emotional regulation systems and how they 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 need to be balanced so shame and self-criticism they sit on the threat system compassion sits on the opposite system it sits on the soothing and affiliative system where you feel this sense of safeness and content and, um, and calmness. 
And then we have uh, another system that, which is also linked to positive emotions, the drive system, which is linked to positive emotions, but positive emotions related to achievement, to uh, obtaining resources, to uh, achieve your goals. So the threat and the drive system are very, very important when it comes to eating behavior because uh, those attempts to control your body, to control your body shape, to control your body weight through the control of your eating is often leave, uh, linked to the drive system and to those positive emotions that come from achieving, from obtaining those results. And when you perceive that you are failing on meeting those results, then the threat system is activated. And that can lead to the reactivation of shame and the reactivation of self-criticism. So you are absolutely right. We can help people uh, reducing that threat and reducing the shame and self-criticism, but that does, do not necessarily mean that they are activating the soothing and the safeness system. And so that's why it is really important to, to really engage in these practices, to activate the soothing system, to, to reestablish that capacity to soothe ourselves, to activate those uh, affiliative emotions and to create in ourselves that sense of contentment and calmness to be able to downregulate the threat system to then be able to engage in actions and to have that compassionate commitment to engage in actions that are helpful to us. And I think you are absolutely right. The fitness industry and the more classic behavior change practices when it comes to weight management and eating behavior, they do focus on potentially reducing self-criticism and engaging in self-monitoring and engaging in, in, um, in those more cognitive and behavioral uh, practices to address issues that people might be having when it comes to their eating behavior, but they do fail to recognize the role that emotions and emotion regulation may be playing in the difficulties in maintaining those behaviors. Because people, people know what to do. They often know what to do. They often know how to manage their weight. They often know what they need to do when it comes to their diet in order to, to maintain a healthy, quote unquote, uh, weight. But it's difficult. It's not easy. The journey is very hard. The difficulties, the emotional difficulties and challenges are tremendous. So it's really important to recognize this and to help people tap into the affiliative system to be able to downregulate that threat so that they have the clarity and the, the courage again to engage in actions that are actually difficult to engage in and to maintain. I think a lot of these sort of prescriptions are based on the assumption that one there is a lack of information or a lack of knowledge as to what to do and two that these actions are equally sort of easy to engage in for everyone which again is not the case as you say a lot of it has to do with the way that we regulate our emotions and if we're not teaching that in combination with these strategies then we're probably falling short of actually being able to help people in the ways that we can so with that in mind we've given them the role of emotional regulation and how compassion can help with that 
where can people start, you know, for, for individuals who maybe are struggling with their, their eating behaviors or feeling a lot of shame around their appearance and their inability to control everything? Where can we start to develop self-compassion? It's really through giving themselves and giving ourselves the, the opportunity of using these competencies, these competencies that allows us to engage with the stress and suffering. So really caring for our well-being, a deep care for our well-being, being sensitive to our own distress, noticing our own distress, tolerating that distress. So learning how to sit with that distress, calming our bodies, calming our minds, to be able to engage with the difficult emotional landscape that we might be sitting on. And having that empathy and a, a non-judgmental approach to whatever is going on in our minds, bearing in mind that we are living in a very critical environment. So these are is, this doesn't exist only in our minds. We are living in a very conflicting and punitive society. By developing those competencies, we can then develop the capacity to engage in helpful actions, to engage, uh, to decide with greater clarity, how do we want to, to use food in our lives? So having that respect for our bodies, that respect for our home, our body, but also our home, our planet, when it comes to, to how available food is to us. So choosing to have a healthier, relationship with food and with ourselves so this involves that courage involves the courage to sit with the negative emotions to sit with the negative experiences but to choose to act in a way that is helpful to us when it comes to eating and also in the way that we choose to move our bodies so at the intention to which we engage in exercise the intention to which we engage in physical activity and the goals that we want to achieve with that are we moving our bodies with that goal of controlling, shaping, or molding our body into what we, we perceive that society will see as attractive? Or are we moving our bodies to feel vibrant, to feel free, to feel healthy? So the intention here is key. Yeah, I think that, again, really helps to illustrate how it's not about giving up it's not about stopping doing the things that you like you know if exercise and movement is something that can be really empowering and can really help you to develop strength and it could be a great outlet you know these are all really motivations for engaging in these things and it's so much more sustainable and so much more life enhancing than using movement or using food reducing food to something that is purely there for you to control your physique with and again I really like how you highlighted the strength of compassion and the reasons that we need it given that we're living in a society that is punitive yes in regards to our appearance but also on many other domains as well and that's why I think clients have pinpointed the compassion the development of compassion as being something that really improved their quality of life because it doesn't only apply to our eating and to our movements and there's so many 
lessons that you can learn from facing like difficult things and having that courage and strength to sit with negative unpleasant experiences that will apply across our lifespan you know given that there are many challenges that we're going to face so I wonder whether you have any resources or any places that you would like to direct listeners to if they're curious about learning more um, about compassion or about your work. Is there anywhere that people can find you? Well, people can get in touch through my email. I currently work as a lecturer at Goat St. John University, so you can follow my research over there and you have my contact there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Consilience podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with someone who will find it helpful. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and quick review. The topics I speak about aren't particularly trendy or sexy, so this makes a huge difference. And don't forget to join the Empowered Edit a weekly newsletter with evidence-based tools and strategies to help you build your health and confidence. You will get first access to everything that's going on and insights that I don't share anywhere else. The link will be in the show notes. And until then, I will catch you in the next episode.